before we hop over into the episode, we have exciting news. Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp is back and it's bigger and it's better and it's bolder and it is on the 31st of October. What a mouthful. Okay, so it's back. It is now still full workshops, still live, still pulling amazing, incredible, passionate communicators, marketers, project managers, people working to make a difference together from across the country to explore how behavioral science can really help us accelerate our learning, accelerate our impact. Now, the exciting thing is that one day is absolutely incredible and we just don't want it to end. So it's not going to. When you go through the one day, you have four workshops. You will then have access to the members area where you have the opportunity to attend four weeks follow up. So the four weeks follow up is in the form of Q&As and support sessions throughout those four weeks to help you really nail any particular area that you want to focus on and really come together as a group. This is completely voluntary opt-in. This is a shared safe space kind of learning environment where we really want to start building on each other's strengths and expertise because we really realised we were just missing a trick. The conversations that were taking place in boot camp should not end they're game changing. The knowledge that people have can really help break this cycle of duplication where we have so many people working on similar subjects and we're all so often starting from scratch again. So if there's any way we can start capturing and learning and sharing with direct reference to behavioural science and behaviour change, then I think we will. So we are. So anyone who comes will have the one day learning together with the four workshops and then enter the four week follow up. And of course, the masterclasses and lifetime access to all the on demand videos, etc., are there for you as well as that. To celebrate the fact that we have changed domains, we are now on www.behaviorchange.marketing to celebrate this because anyone who listens knows it's taken a while and the training kind of took a life of its own we have a quiz. So the impactful change quiz is there for anyone who's just not sure how behavioural science can add value to their marketing and where to get started. Now, this first step might surprise you and it's really simple. I mean, it will just help you identify where you are and what bit of behavioural science could probably help you most. And when you get that, you actually get one of our swipe files. So you will get an interactive dashboard which you can use on any subject, whether that's smoking, vaccinations, winter messaging, sexual health, sustainability, active travel is applicable across any subject because these are core processes that you need to use when you're using behavioural science. And I trust me, this dashboard will take you 15 minutes. See, so, you know, this stuff we can get going and we can get started quite simply. So, yeah, head on over to www.behaviorchange.marketing. Check out the boot camp on the 31st of October and have a go at the quiz. Okay, let's head over to the next episode. Welcome to the Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Dale. With over 20 years experience delivering behaviour change marketing across NHS, public health, local government, central government, I work directly on some of the biggest campaigns such as Change for Life, as well as working on much more focused campaigns with some of our most vulnerable members of our communities. I know how hard it is to take the theory and the science and apply it frontline whilst delivering under such pressure with such huge expectations. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the wonderful world of behavioral science, the wonderful world of social marketing and design thinking, and any 
other clever stuff that helps us communicate change, influence behavior, and ultimately increase our impact. Sound good? Let's dive in. We're delighted to welcome to the studio today, Alison Trout. Alison Trout is a behavioural scientist and a health psychologist. She's a practising clinician supporting people every day, but she also is a leading star in the world of behavioural science and she works closely with the Behavioural Science Public Health Network and was in fact the regional lead for many years for the West Midlands Behavioural Science Public Health Network. And we are so, so lucky to have her as our behavioural scientists where we work together on deep dives, focusing in on public health challenges such as weight management, healthy lifestyle services and sexual health. So Alison kind of has been there, done it, and we um, absolutely love working with her. We've uncovered some incredible insights. So today's episode, we're really going to focus in a kind of a behind-the-scenes look at applying Combi and what a behavioural insights deep dive does look like. So welcome, Alison. Hi, Ruth. Great to be here. Oh, thanks so much for coming on, Alison. Now, just before we get started, could you please explain a little bit about the West Midlands Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, just so everyone can understand a little bit about you and your background and how that came about. Sure. So the West Midlands Behavioural Science and Public Health Network was established following the recognition that there was a number of people who I was working with at the time. So I'm going back a few years now, probably six or seven years ago. And we recognised that there was a lot of work going on in academia, particularly at our local universities, which were very strong in terms of their health psychology focus, such as Coventry and obviously in terms of behavioural science at, at Warwick University. And so there's lots of work being done and lots that we knew, but it, we couldn't see it being applied as we would like it to be applied in some of the work that we were doing in public health. And what we were trying to achieve is to bring together those people working in academia who were doing this brilliant work and our public health colleagues, colleagues from Health Education England, bring them together and the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network and Health Education England facilitated this so that we could start to bridge the gap between what we knew, between what best practice from the academic research and what we were doing in public health. And we recognised that, you know, there was a number of barriers, but there was a number of facilitators as well. But to start with, we wanted to get people in the room, helping people to learn about some of the practical tools, such as Combi and the Behaviour Change Wheel, understand a bit more about East and Mindspace, so that people could start to, we could start to drip feed really to people who are working in public health, you know, how we could start to apply some of this work and also to kind of build those bridges between our academic colleagues as well. So bringing the two groups together. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating because I think it's fair to say that the situation, the gap between academia and the reality of applying it in the wild, as they say, or in the workplace, is sort of replicated across not just the country, but across behavioural science globally there is a huge gap when it comes to actually having the headspace and the time and the resources to adopt new ways of working, which is ironic, really, considering it's all about behavioural science, it's all about behaviour change. So it sounds like fascinating work and exactly a kind of what we do with our deep dives, I suppose, but we perhaps take the responsibility away from 
the council and do it on their behalf. Normally, when people are short of time or they've got quite a, a clear bespoke project they need delivering on. But yeah, so for today, could would you think it'd be really good to focus in on some of those barriers and some of those learnings based on your experience, you know, doing the training, bringing all those people together, and then also experience as a clinician, actually working with the individual, but then our experience together, you know, working with councils and the NHS and some, you know, healthcare companies to actually apply behavioral science develop the insight, and then, of course, use the insights. For today, let's focus in on Combi, I think, because it's still the most popular kid at school and still the one everyone is talking about. And I don't know if you agree, there are a lot of similarities across the insight projects that we see when we're working with people. It doesn't seem to matter what the subject is, whether it's healthy weight or sexual health. People will still come up against the same barriers when they try to implement it. So recognizing and planning for those can really help you skip, divert them, you know, jump over them, etc. Love to hear from you. What do you think are kind of the top things to look out for if you are a, so you're in the council right now, you're listening or you're in the marketing comms team and you're having a play with Combi, trying to get your head around it. What are some of the key things you would say to be aware of? So I work with a number of councils and you and I have worked with councils as well, Ruth, together. I have actually asked as part of one of some of the work I've done with some of the various councils is to look at some of the barriers and facilitators for using behavioural science in their departments. And I did do a paper which was published in the BSPHN journal two or three years ago, which outlined this, some of my findings. So I'd say, again, it varies. I'd say that if you're working for a provider, a health provider, you might have slightly different issues that you're dealing with or barriers of facilitators. So if you're working with a group of clinicians and trying to help them to apply the behavior change techniques, the issues are slightly different and actually slightly easier, I think, than when you're working with an organization where there's a whole kind of different layers of potential barriers that you have to work with. So some of the findings are, and one of the really helpful things that I found was to actually apply COM2, COMB2, this issue when you're looking at, say, working with a council. So you could, for example, if you think about issues around capability, so many of your team in public health, for example, and the wider council may not have the skill set or understanding of behavioural science and applying behavioural science, very common, which would come under capability. So the C in the combi. Also, people are often fearful of new ideas. So that, you know, they're very apprehensive about it, concerned about it. What will it mean for them? Again, we could, that's something that you would consider would come under the automatic motivation. So fear, so if you, if you map it in this way, it's quite helpful, actually. So some of the things that I found were that I suppose one of the major things for me was the, the necessity in, you know, with academic research for randomized control trials. And when you try to apply this to real life situations in a council or in an NHS organization, it's really difficult to yeah. achieve that high level standard. <laughs> So I think what was really helpful for me was to start to understand that, you know, and I've, I've had situations where I've been 
so incredibly frustrated that we couldn't you know do a, an a b trial that you know i don't know i just got despaired but then I, I suppose just having permission to to realize that actually it doesn't have to be perfect and it's never going to be perfect and if you're trying to achieve perfection it's not going to happen so it just has to be good enough so you have to kind of recognize that and you know use the caveats that you know this is just recognizing that some of this work that we've done here was based on these assumptions and you know we recognize that this wasn't perfect we couldn't achieve an rct here but we we think that we're confident enough to think that this was good enough okay so it's recognizing that it, it can just be good enough i think as i mentioned earlier there's a fear like some people might be quite frightened about what this new way of working is this applying behavioral science what it means for them so you know they're going to be quite apprehensive and I, but i think there's you know thinking about this in terms of how understanding what the reason is for their fear will help you then to address that and provide the appropriate intervention so diffusing those fears by you know helping people realize there isn't anything to be scared of it's actually going to help them achieve their goals achieve the organization's goals it's going to make their lives easier that can be really beneficial yeah so just to recap there so who would be doing that who would be telling them who would be identifying the fears and showing them how it makes their lives easier? I think it's multiple. It's around multiple routes, really, to help them to understand that. I think that there needs to be organisational buy-in from the start to say, you know, this is what this is our yeah. approach. We're using it. It's evidence-based. But I think having people around them that can support them to help them understand that and to, to provide some mentoring in on some occasions it depends what their role is but just helping people to yeah to to kind of understand what it is is nothing to be scared of and actually it's going to be very beneficial for everybody yeah so I because just sounds like the role of a leader is that is very important there it sounds like those two things you've mentioned can only come from someone who's the decision maker because they're influencing other people so almost like it needs to be from the top is it possible to push behavioral science from the middle maybe depending on how strong you are but I don't know it sounds like those two things are very you know they need leadership and I know you can lead at every level as long as you've got organizational buy-in yeah absolutely it needs to be yeah it needs to be part of the project and built into the the whole kind of you know, the way that the organisation functions in terms of how they deliver, how they go about yeah. project, working with projects. Yeah. And, you know, is there a need for behavioural science in this project, recognising that as part of the, yeah. the way that they, they operate? Yeah. So, so I, yeah, so absolutely it needs to come from the yeah. top. The reason I yeah. flag it is from a communications and marketing perspective, behavioural science could potentially be pushed to a job, someone's job. You know, and that's what happens with comms when actually good comms is everyone's job. Good marketing, you know, you have your marketing leads, but actually if there is, if there are bosses, they need to be able to communicate independently. And I, I feels like behavioral science needs that as well. But actually don't be careful of not just pushing it down to, you know, in a project plan, behavioral science under one person one poor person who is not the decision maker and perhaps not even invited to all the project meetings yeah so i think that's yeah absolutely. Like you know you just need that yeah and there's different ways of going about this as well so you can you know as you mentioned earlier you can 
often organisations don't have the capacity to to do this work themselves. I mean, I suppose my view would be that, yeah, so, so one option would be to have a behavioural scientist working whose job was purely behavioural science working within an organisation doing these projects. Another option would be that that person would be doing some of those projects, but also spend time upskilling the rest of the team yeah. so that they can then deliver. But they, it's like a hub and spoke approach. So there's various ways of doing it. It, it depends. But again, my experience is that if you do do training, then there needs to be ongoing support to help with to help people because if they do start to use this approach, they do put themselves up for potentially criticism because you are looking at the a, a kind of scientific approach where you're sometimes your interventions won't work and the data's there and the evidence shows that and that's sometimes that's not particularly palatable easily so you have to be quite I suppose quite courageous to use this approach in a way because you have to learn about it and you apply it and then you know it may not work and that's that's fine because it doesn't work so it's an iterative process so then you tweak it until it it does start to work so I love I think that yeah so I think that it makes people you know quite apprehensive about using it so you know so I think that that can be a barrier for people yeah and I just think in the public sector anyway that sense of permission to experiment and test things has to come that's got to be a cultural thing that people are stepping into they've got to be allowed to experiment and think like a scientist like you say it's behavioral science they've got to be able to think like a scientist and not just get things right first time because not all marketing campaigns work either Yes. But yeah, there's a lot of people waiting in the wings sometimes for things to go wrong. So yeah, yeah. like you say, a lot of courage. Okay, go on, Alison. Sorry, I keep interrupting yeah. you. So, <laughs> no, not at all. That's <laughs> helpful. So I suppose the other thing is as well, one of the, the things that I used to come up against was quite frequently was that somebody would ask you for behavioral uh, science support for a project. And they would say, oh, we're having problems with this. I won't be too specific about it, but we're having problems with this. I say, okay, so let's look at this. Let's address this. So you'd start to kind of go down this road that this is the issue. But actually, when you started to, because part of what you're, you're doing is triangulating, you're looking at different evidence, different information, pulling it all together to form a, to do your behavioral analysis, you start to realize that actually that's not what you think is the problem, isn't actually the problem. In the whole system, there's problems here and here and here, which are impacting on what you think is the problem, but that's not actually the problem. So then you have to go back to your source who asked you to do the work and say, actually, I know you think it's this, but actually it is, but it's because of this part of the system. And actually, if you look at it in a, if you look at it from a systems perspective, a kind of formulation, you can start to kind of see that there's different parts of the system working against each other or sometimes facilitating Mm -hmm. and sometimes helping so you can see these sort of negative cycles and positive cycles sometimes, but you can kind of see how they're perpetuating the problem or helping the problem. And it's just identifying those. And then again, that requires some courage to go back to your source and say, 
I know you think it's this, but actually it's not. It's this <laughs> because that kind of really has to, people have to make a real shift in the way that they think about things. So yes. understanding the system at the start and understanding you know, the context is really important. Yeah, I think you're right. And design thinking uses the double diamond, doesn't it? It asks you to pull out from your problem and look at the system. I always think that's a nice way. And I love systems mapping. I think it releases pressure because sometimes I think when you get the brief, along with the brief comes this pressure that you're going to suddenly solve this big challenge that a huge organization is grappling with. And everyone's looking, oh, behavioral science will sort it out. And definitely in marketing and say, for example, A&E, oh, yeah, run an A&E campaign this winter. That will stop everyone going. (laughs) And it's almost like, well, no, because the A&E pressures are a symptom of the system breakdown. And who's going to turn around to their director, medical directors, and or, you know, and say, actually, you know, it's this or that, or there are no other community hospitals to divert them to because they closed them all. 20, you know, or whatever it is, where the block in the system is, because the system has just been under such strain for so long, there will be loads of breaks across the system. So I think, yeah, completely understand that one. How do you do it then, Alison? Any tips for breaking the bad news to I don't know if if I've got that as a huge amount of experience in that but I think if you can get the right people around the table to start with and bring them with you rather than go back to them and say this is what my diagnosis is you know and just say right what do we all think here or what's going on in the system get all your stakeholders the people to agree it. So if you can get agreement, then there's buy-in, isn't there? You're more likely to get buy-in from people if you can yeah. to say, yes, we recognise this is. And you can have that debate in that forum, can't you, around let's agree on what this is, what's going on here, yeah. what what we think is happening, and then we can we can go away and work on the, the behavioural yeah. analysis. I think that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, bring them with you. Yes, and so definitely. part of the job is actually to bring them with you. I think if you take on that responsibility, I need these stakeholders to come along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Then you put actions in place to achieve that. And they understand the why then, don't they? They understand why. Yeah. um, And they've agreed it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think asking them to set a measurable goal really helps tip that conversation. Because when you realise that what ask is measurable, um, it helps really break it down and chunk it down and say, what is the impact we're hoping to achieve here? And where is it going to be felt? Because as you say, we're, we are existing in a very interdependent system. So there's something about us once we understand that perhaps the system, you know, the ripple effects and any changes we make, are are they impacting later? But like yeah. spiders web, Absolutely. you know. Yeah, and that's where the appease criteria come in to really help with that which is looking at you know is it practical is it realistic is this is this feasible Um, is it acceptable by you know is it acceptable by our community whether that's within the within the organization or within the public or both so it's looking at it's making sure that we are checking in using that tool throughout the process if we're using say the behavior change wheel to design an intervention And I think people feel quite reassured about using that. Yes. And so, sorry, just for anyone that's not familiar with the APPEASE criteria, that is an acronym, a framework that they can use 
to help them sort of consider the, their plan from many yes. perspectives. And it is part of the combi framework. Well, it's part of the behaviour change wheel work. And yeah, yeah it's just like it, really, yeah. it's a sense of trust. Yeah, it's affordability, practicality, effectiveness and cost effectiveness, acceptability, side effects and safety and equity. And I think what you were alluding to there, Ruth, was are there any unintended consequences, knock-on effects onto other services, which would be the side effect? Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's fantastic. And equity, I think, is massive, especially at the moment with the realisations of the, you know, that I know equity and inequality are different, but, you know, there is, it's very front of mind at the moment about how we don't want to further increase health inequalities in our actions, even by accident. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, fabulous. Any others for us? I'm sure there are. I suppose I think my feelings are that I think what's what can often happen with behavioural science is it is useful for anybody who is looking you know behavior change is part of so many if you think about a, a particular area of work whatever it is in within public health there's always an element of behavior change whether that's behavior change of the, it's not just around changing the behavior of a particular populate target group the public it's not just part of that it's part of the organization are we looking to change the behaviour of people working in primary care, in secondary care? Yeah. You know, if we think about something like making every contact count, for example, we want to change the behaviour of health practitioners. Well, how do we do that? So it's not something that we're just applying to. And I think that sometimes there's an assumption it's about uh, something we apply to target groups in the community that we're working with. But it's not. It could be behaviour change of anybody, the organisation. And that's why I mentioned earlier that you can apply COM to looking at an organisation, whether, you know, the barriers and facilitators to an organisation changing to use behavioural science yeah. um, more routinely. So it's, yeah. it's for, for everyone. And there's always an element in there to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. Thank you. Because I think internal comms is quite a big discipline in big organisations. And there's a lot of transformation programmes going on, a lot of restructuring. So Combi is actually really good to help people delivering those transformation programmes, perhaps work a bit smarter and a bit more effectively if they use it as a framework to help guide them. I think, yeah, although we are pretty experts at change now, there has been so much. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's a really important point. It's not just about targeting, you know, people, individuals. And amazing if it could be kind of applied at a systematic level as well, you know, not go one step a bit more macro, not just at organizational level, but to look at actually how the system interdependencies are changing, you know, to facilitate different sort of different things. But that's the kind of going down another rabbit hole. One thing we do say in our training, in the boot camp training, is that when you start scoping out behavioural science and understanding combi and perhaps really getting to the nub of your challenge, like you say, working with people to understand what is it we actually need to do, it does feel like you've gone down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. It can, there are parts and I know we feel that too, don't we, in the Insight Projects. There are moments of time when you just hold on. You're like, right, 
trust the framework, <laughs> trust the yeah. framework. I mean, I've done this for over 10 years. You yourself have many years experience and I still feel it. There's a couple of points in any project where you go, right, I have no idea what's going on at this point because you've got so much information coming in. We all worry about making assumptions and our own biases. And the more you understand behavioral science, the more you understand your behavioral biases. And then the more you worry about applying your behavioral biases to the analysis. But there's also this point with, you know, you suddenly feel the pressure of the responsibility. And am I taking people down the right direction? You know, are these findings going to lead this project down, you know, the right place? And so that's one thing I would just say that is so normal. And It's really healthy, though, isn't it, Ruth? If you understand the because of our work, we understand a lot about behavioural biases. So I think although it's quite uncomfortable sometimes, you do tend to check in with yourself and think, am I using that particular bias here? And am I? And it does feel awkward, doesn't it? It feels difficult. But I think that, you know, you're reflecting, aren't you? You're kind of stepping away and like reflecting back to say, yeah. I'm just checking in here that I'm not, I don't think I am. I can't completely 100% say that I'm not using a, a particular bias, but you're always striving not to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is worth it. And just to say, because sometimes we skip frameworks, don't we? We can work a bit too fast and sort of do a bit of a framework or, you know, skip over things in projects. And I would say that's the one reason don't. Even if it's not combi you're using, you might use stages of change or you might be using whatever theory or evidence you're using, framework you go for stick to it. Don't jump out halfway through because the framework is there to hold you. It's your safe container when you have those moments. And I've got you, Alison, so it's great if I'm going, oh, you know, I can speak to you. But if people are in a workplace, there might be a lot of people work on their own. You know, that's what the framework is there for those moments and trust in the framework. Because I have to say, Combi has never let me down. The insights we come out without the other end are incredible. You know, we specialize in online focus groups and online qual research. And it is incredible. And we've done both thematic analysis and the kind of more behavioral analysis on the same kind of focus groups. And it still brings so much more to the table. It's like thematic analysis gets you so far, but Combi really will just honor so many insights for you. And just to remind everyone, it is a diagnosis tool. So it's at that point where you really understand the challenge. And in our industry, what happens is people will skip this part and go straight to execution <laughs> because of all the worries that we've discussed and all the barriers we could dis- we've discussed. But actually, that's when you kind of really put pressure on yourself because you're asking yourself to come up with all the answers. And actually, the answers are in the insight. And the insight comes once you've followed the combi process. So, yeah, it's a lot less stressful, but a bit scary sometimes along the ride. (laughs) (laughs) I think we found last time we did some work together, Ruth, we used the TDF, didn't we? The theoretical domains framework to help us to identify the influences or the, the factors that were particular issues before a particular group that we were working with at the time which really helped, didn't it? Because it made it sort of a a more granular 
process than just using com alone. So you use com first, but then you kind of look to see what specifically is the issue here. So for example, I think when we were doing some work previously, we identified that reflective motivation was one of the key issues. But within that, the TDF would take you a step further. So you could identify that actually identity was the particular issue within that domain of reflective motivation. And there was, yeah, so it can be really helpful, can't it? And also, I think we looked at social opportunity was another area we identified within that social norms. So it was a particular issue. And and these kept cropping up. And it really does help to start to kind of build a picture of what's happening. Much clearer, isn't it? I think it makes it clearer. Yeah. I think we found that particularly helpful. Mm. In the Behaviour Change Wheel Guide to Designing Interventions, it does take you through how to use the not only combi the behaviour change wheel, but yeah, the PEAS criteria and the theoretical domains framework. Yeah, and I have to be honest, I don't think everyone gets to the TDF. I've worked on many projects where we haven't used it. And actually, the power of it, this one was really obvious where, like you said earlier, it just breaks it down, it chunks it down, it makes it so much more granular. So and it uses the words, it actually uses, you know, this, so therefore you may need education. So therefore you may need training. So therefore you may need, you know, whatever behavior change technique sort of is starting to allude there and take them to that one next step. And I know UCL are, are reviewing that taxonomy of behavioral change techniques, aren't they? And they're doing a massive yeah. study where they're going to be looking at you know, what techniques are best for what challenge. So that's really exciting. I really hope. Thank you, academics and scientists for doing that. Because once you've done that, we can start using it. And I think um, when you're in marketing, you can start using it from a perspective of, I know what I need. So it is used as a more of a prompt tool to understand the messaging a bit more and the audience a bit more. But because we work in such complicated systems, I don't think there's anyone listening who wouldn't say that you are often asked to run a comms campaign when you don't need to. So I think Combi and the TDF framework combined, if you can get to then move on to actually looking at the techniques that, you know, the options, it actually helps you again because so often when you don't need to run a campaign, it's you're not just giving people a problem back saying, well, look, you don't need one. Go away. I'm busy. You say, look, you don't need one. Education is what you need, you know, or a very bespoke project. I was working on projects a short while ago. And, you know, they didn't need a population level approach to this particular issue. They needed a very bespoke, you know, education piece, which is very different to a marketing campaign. So, yeah, it is your friend if you can take it to that next step. And it was so powerful, wasn't it? I really loved that bit. And that was thanks to you doing that extra, extra work. So and I feel like I learned so much every time I work with you. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. I think, I mean, for me, I think the behaviour change, understanding, you know, what's going on and identifying it clearly, as clear as you possibly can with the information that you've got it does really help you to, you know, start to think about what your intervention needs to be. And I think that for me, one of the big frustrations over, because I've worked in public health for 20 years. So when I first started, I used to, I suppose one of the big frustrations was 
when I used to ask people, they used to say, are we doing behaviour change? And I'd say, well, what is it you're doing? This was before the NICE guidance for behaviour change came out. And, you know, they'd say, oh, we're just, we're just helping people to make changes. And I, but they couldn't identify what it was they were doing. So I was saying, so I, I, I used to feel really frustrated about it because I, there wasn't anything other than having a chat with somebody. And then I think that, you know, as we started to get the behaviour change guidance, public health behaviour change guidance emerged, we could then use that as the basis for you need to understand about these behaviour change techniques, these approaches, these work. And then the behaviour change techniques taxonomy really helped further. So that was kind of a step further. You know, we could be really clear about, you know, this is a behaviour change technique that addresses this particular issue or and also the Dixon and Johnson framework has been really, really helpful in that respect and a very practical tool to help people to understand, you know, which behaviour change techniques do you use for helping with motivation, which behaviour change techniques you help for, for actioning, for helping people to action their changes and which behaviour change techniques for prompting. So that's also a very useful tool that I've, I use often in training. Because oh, you have to try and make it as practical. Yeah, what's it called again, Alison? Sorry, the Dixon and... and it's a Dixon and Johnson framework. We'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really helpful. I feel they've revised it recently, but I, it's so useful because it's just very practical. So when you're training people, helping them to understand... You know, just a very it's a very basic level. If if somebody's struggling with motivation, here's some of the behaviour change techniques you might want to consider. If yeah. somebody's if you're at the action stage, here's some of the behaviour change. You know, people maybe who aren't doing it's their main job or that part of their function is behaviour change because it's a very quick mnemonic that can help people to think ah this is a motivation problem or whatever it is. So it's used at different levels of behaviour change, but really helpful. Okay. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so, so much. So loads in there, Alison. Yeah, it's more for the clinical setting. <laughs> yeah. But, you yeah, know, nice to know. Nice to know. And like you say, if there's an easy, easy win there that just helps people sort of learning their learnings and understanding grow, that's wonderful. We love easy, anything easy, to be honest. <laughs> there's enough complexity in the world without us adding to it. So, but thank you so much. You covered absolutely loads there just about the realities of, you know, of applying behavioural science in the workplace. So hopefully for listeners, that's helped anyone who is thinking about getting started. Perhaps they will get started now. And don't worry, don't let fear or worry or anxiety of getting it wrong or perhaps it not working stop you from getting started. Someone said every adventure starts with the first step. I can't remember. That isn't Alice in Wonderland, but it's some quote from some children's (laughs) book, from my son's book. So, yes, so take your first step into the wonderful world of behaviour change. So, Alison, we always finish asking, what book would you recommend? What's one book that changed your life that you would recommend? So, could you... Oh, it's got to be Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah, I've got to. Yeah, no, it's a it's a brilliant book, and and it yeah, and it just helps you to. Yeah, look at things in a slightly different way. I mean, some of the stuff is you, you're aware of it from psychology background anyway, but it's just, yeah, it was really. And I think it came at a time for me when there was a lot going on in the world and you could see, I could see that I think other people had been reading the book and were applying some of the techniques and strategies, you know, in politics, basically. So, so I think that that book for me. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. 
So Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And yeah, just to say, I think that the commercial world adopted it really quickly. When you look at all of the marketing and the priming and even the concept of a brand, it's all, you know, you can link it all back. And we just got to get better and quicker and faster at doing it in our system. If we're ever going to balance balance it out, thinking specifically of, I was reading about food safety or the right to access to food and, you know, the hundreds of millions that's being pumped into fast food advertising. And I was thinking, oh my God, imagine if we had those hundred millions to pump into, you know, some perhaps some choices that would make people feel good. <laughs> so Yeah, we want to use it for good. We want to use all that knowledge for good, Ruth. Not Yeah, yeah. Not so that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's so much learning to take because they are yeah, they're out there doing it. Oh, you can once you've read the book, you see it everywhere. So yes. Fantastic. You do. You absolutely do. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Alison. Thank you so much. Everyone go out and read that book if you can and we'll hook it up in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you so much for listening. We're so delighted you joined us. And if you got any value out of this at all, or even if you just simply had a little chuckle, please do share it with anyone you think it may benefit. And please, if you do leave a review, oh my gosh, we would be forever in your debt. The algorithms on podcasts are pretty tough and reviews do make all the difference. So please do head over onto your platform and leave us one. And also, if you need to know anything about our latest training or you just want to get in touch, head over to our website, which is www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk forward slash bootcamp.